Hello and welcome to Twinkle and One Step's brand new podcast, Every Day is a School Day, where we'll be discussing the key knowledge required of teachers in particular topics. I'm Sally Hill, your host for this episode. I'm the CPD manager for Twinkle and it's powered by service One Step CPD. Before this, I was a history teacher as well as a head of department, CPD lead and all-round history geek. So I'm very excited about this episode. Today, we are joined by two experienced teachers, one an expert in the area and the other who is an experienced teacher who's going to be teaching this for the very first time in September. So let's welcome our guests. First, our expert, Melanie Clifton. Tell us a little bit about your teaching experience, Mel. Hi, Sally. Um, I'm a secondary history teacher, currently teaching in a secondary school in Stockport. Uh, this is my third year teaching, but I've been a history geek for uh, about 24 years. Fantastic. Right. So, so similar to me then, that's always good. Yeah, always like yeah, to have yeah. more history geeks <laughs> around. Um, and welcome to our novice for today, Alex Bedwell. Um, how long have you been teaching for? What's your context and what's your specialist topic? So I've been teaching for seven years. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually a modern languages teacher. I teach French, German and Italian. Currently teaching French primarily at a small independent school in Macclesfield. Um, but I teach because it's an independent school I teach all through I teach from the uh, year one right to year 11 so I I have taught some key stage two French but but never history it's going to be a new one for me it's very exciting actually how how is it teaching year one all the way through till year 11 interesting varied it's good (laughs) it's not not um what I signed up for to start with but I'm glad that it's happened because I I there's a different way of thinking with the little ones. They just do everything differently. Um, and it, so I'm a bit intrigued as to how history is going to go down with, with year six. Well, hopefully we will be able to help you a bit with that today. Um, they will love it. They will indeed, especially this topic. This topic is a oh, yeah. great one. I'm, I'm, I'm really building up this tension, aren't I? Because I haven't actually <laughs> revealed yet what it is, but we're going to get there in the end. Um, right, my next question to you two may seem like a really obvious one, but it's really, really important because it's the basis for this entire podcast. So why is subject knowledge important in teaching? Um, okay, well big question um but it seems like quite an easy question for a teacher to answer i'm sure alex will say some very similar things to me um but i think it's fundamental you are the expert in the room you are um the person who has studied it you are there to impart knowledge onto the uh, pupils in the classroom and high uh, high quality teaching depends on that factual knowledge of your subject also conceptual understanding of your subject um and if you don't have good subject knowledge you're very vulnerable you're very exposed and uh, I would argue you're not doing your job as a teacher if you do not know what you're supposed to be teaching. Yeah, it's that extension knowledge. And I'll go to Alex on this one as well. I mean, being a languages teacher, Alex, I suppose subject knowledge is absolutely crucial for you. Subject knowledge is everything. I have to be a walking, <laughs> I have to be a walking dictionary in the classroom. <laughs> uh, but it, it is absolutely everything. It's that confidence that the children have in you to be able to actually teach them. If you go, well, I don't know, to any question that they answer, or any, even if it's just once, they go, do you really know what you're doing? And there is times in times in languages when you don't, you, I mean, you don't, as I say to the children, this is, I don't know every single word in English. So I can't know every single word in French. They, they, they look at you and go, do you really know what you're doing? <laughs> this comes in with differentiation. If you're very high ability pupils are um, wanting to be stretched and stretched and stretched, you have to have extremely deep subject knowledge, but also to be able to teach quite complex topics to us to lower ability, you have to know it extremely well to be able to 
edit what you're saying basically i think to summarize it seems like there's a very fine line between having that growth mindset approach like alex talked about in the sense that you you do want to show i don't know everything i can't know everything and i'm always learning as well but there is a fine line between that and then as mel said being very vulnerable and actually being almost exposed for not knowing that knowledge <laughs> so it's kind of it's an impossible yeah. task <laughs> I think it was history as well, because history is literally everything that's ever happened on the planet. Um, So I think, obviously, historians have different expertise. So I think, you know, you should have a scope, but there's no way you can know absolutely everything that's ever happened, ever. I could think of an example when I was was asked to teach ICT once (laughs) at a a previous school. I I just didn't know what to talk about. I didn't understand. I had to ask my dad on basic coding issues because I just don't, I don't understand and the kids kid picked up on that I spent more time trying to work out what was going on and trying to plan any lesson it was a bit of a disaster yeah. so knowing being able to understand properly what I'm teaching is really really important although back to what Mel said about the history is everything I do remember once a geography teacher saying to me that she wished she taught history because it was such a narrow subject <laughs> so yeah but I, IT I don't know, even know where I would start teaching IT um, no, at least they yeah. understand how history works Yes, that's true. Yes. <laughs> most, most people have a grounding in history, which is why I think it's a really good one for our very first episode. Um, so with that being said, let's introduce today's topic. I ramped up the tension a lot for this already. Um, <laughs> so it's a key stage two topic. It's a history topic, if you haven't already guessed, which will keep me and Mel very happy. Um, and it is the Viking and Anglo-Saxon struggle for the Kingdom of England at the time of Edward the Confessor. So this is off the national curriculum from 2014, and it includes the subtopics, Viking raids and invasion, resistance by Alfred the Great and Ethelstan, further Viking invasions and Danegeld, Anglo-Saxon laws and justice, and Edward the Confessor and his death in 1066. So there is a lot in there already. There is a lot of tricky words like Danegeld. There's a lot of people with names we will probably not recognise like Ethelstan and trying to get kids to say words like Ethelstan. I'm recognising a lot of things from the TV series Last Kingdom. Have you ever watched Last Kingdom? I haven't. Sadly not. That's a shame. It's it's on Netflix. After this, watch it. Test your knowledge of all of this topic just by being like, yeah, I recognise that, recognise that. Um, Right, Alex, I'm going to come to you straight away. Do you know anything about this topic already at all? Not even slightly. <laughs> um, this is, I mean, you, you've, you've got the right person on. Um, see, I didn't even do GCSE history. Um, I, I remember doing 1066 onwards and then like the Doomsday Book in year seven. But I do not know anything pre-1066. Um, in it, what year were you in year seven, Alex? Just out of pure curiosity. <laughs> I was in year seven in the previous millennium. 1999. Wow, okay. wow. wow. So we have got, 21 years gap between you doing anything from this even near this period is there anything that you're immediately worried about are there any red flags going up already there are nothing but red flags (laughs) (laughs) hopefully mel can help you with that Um, so what are the key history skills for anyone who maybe has never taught history before or doesn't teach history that much so you have um chronology You've got change in continuity. So how do things become different or how do things uh, sort of stay the same? And in what is it? Uh, you could analyse the rate of change. You can analyse how much different groups of society change, that kind of thing. So that change in continuity. You've got cause and consequence, what things led up to a certain event. And then you've got consequence of what happened as a result of that event. You've got significance, which is one of my favourite ones to analyse, sort of reasons why somebody or something or somewhere is important why it should be taught why it should be known about 
significance. You've got interpretations, so different viewpoints, either again, that could be of an event or a person or an era in history. So Alfred the Great, we've talked about interpretations of him that is forming us using evidence to form an opinion. And then you've got um, using historical sources as well, so being able to analyse and interpret sources for yourself. So what are the big ideas and concepts in this topic? It's the first sort of establishment of England and maybe some sort of semblance of what England is like a little bit today in terms of power, in terms of early English identity, where some of our culture, and as a linguist, I don't know if this might, you know, appeal to you, Alex, is the idea of some of where our words might come from. The idea so of like get on board with that. Things like this idea of addressing this uh, label of dark ages, this idea of after the Romans left, and England was plunged into this dark ages, this era where there was nothing going on, but actually there was quite a lot going on, and it's probably more positive than it maybe gets credit for. So I thought that's quite an interesting sort of concept and idea to go head around. That's really interesting. So we've got we've got identity, we've got culture, we've got kingship, and we've also got a little bit of revisionist history, which is very exciting. What would a standard six lesson plan cover? Six is a very harsh number. It to is give a me. harsh number. I just I just chose one. <laughs> Uh, you could have got me like 10 yeah um, nope six you get six <laughs> i think probably start off with who the anglo-saxons were so the tribes we know from mainland europe because you need to understand the, the geography a little bit of it um so where the anglo-saxons came from why they migrated same with the vikings as well um vikings you could do two three four lessons on um depending on the time but vikings sort of who they were why they came over to england you could question some interpretations about whether they were violent or bloodthirsty whether actually they were quite peaceful quite clever creative intelligent religious all those kinds of questions you could get a good couple of lessons about alfred the great um how he was a king types of kingship interpretations of him really what was he that great was he maybe not that great um, and then all the way up into things like uh, Ethelred the Unready, paying the Dane girls to the Vikings. You've got Edward the Confessor, him dying in 1066, kickstarting the whole issues of you know the Norman Conquest in 1066, which is more typical of the Year Seven uh, history content when they go into Key Stage Three. So yeah, you go, you could get a really good ch- chunk of lessons in that six lessons. Wow, that is a lot of covering, and <laughs> I think that's really interesting. Like we were saying about the revisionist style of history, is yeah, are the Vikings as blood for thirsty? as we think they are you know that even when i was at school we were taught as complete fact that the vikings always had horns on their heads on their helmets not on their actual heads but on their helmets (laughs) that is not true (laughs) that is not true but also not true that they had horns on their helmets and that's also not true it's also not true and and it's amazing that yeah there's so many things that we assume about this topic which i suppose is why subject knowledge is really important for teachers because if i went in straight away i'd be like yeah let's design a helmet it's got massive horns on it and actually no that is very historically (laughs) inaccurate but yeah Yeah. also looking at the idea of greatness because i suppose it's really interesting to say to kids yeah what does the word great mean because like alfred the great why why does he deserve that and maybe Ethelstan doesn't get that so yeah, yeah I you think get that... and you've got all these different like the little nicknames of all the different kings like confessor unready uh the great and it's actually quite a high level skill you can mm. really like stretch those high ability pupils um, with this idea of what what does great mean? Do they deserve that? And that's quite a high level skill because you're forming your own interpretation there. So you're actually acting as a historian, engaging with evidence. With that being said, then let's move on to our next section where we are going to learn some knowledge in, please, sir, I want some knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Mel, Pressure. it's over yeah. to you for a few minutes. 
Can you please tell us about the Anglo-Saxons and Vikings at the time of Edward the Confessor? I'll go for it. So, so sort of the Anglo-Saxon sort of begins after the fall of the Roman Empire. So 410 AD, Rome falls and the Roman army get up and they leave Britain because they need to go back and defend their their city, their civilization. Enter the tribes from mainland Europe. You've got the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes, which everyone... I don't think anyone knows about the Jutes. It's always Anglo-Saxons, but it's actually three different tribes. And they set sail and they arrive in Britain. Several reasons. They're bad farming and famine in their own countries. Britain is this wealth of resources, good farmland, lots of silver. And they come over and there's no Roman army to fight them off. So they're able to settle and establish Anglo-Saxon England. You've also got them initially being pagan. So they initially have this pagan religion and they believe in lots of different gods and beasts and animals. And over time, the Pope in Rome sends people to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. So you've got this religious change occurring in about 600, 100, 700 AD. You've got Viking attacks as well. And Vikings were originally pagan. In 793 AD, they attack Lindisfarne Monastery, which is just off the coast of Northumbria. And it's the most famous sort of example of a Viking raid. They attack Lindisfarne, they burn it to the ground, these big ships arrive with dragon heads, and there's this really nice Anglo-Saxon chronicle uh, excerpt that describes this attack of the Vikings. They take young boys as uh, monks to become slaves, they kill the old monks, they pillage, burn down, steal all the treasure. And I think that's where you get this interpretation of Vikings being these horrible, bloodthirsty pirates, murderers, all these horrible things. But then they start to settle in England and they start to realise that England's actually quite a good place for farmland themselves. A lot of the sort of second sons of Viking families settle in England because they've got no land of their own back in Denmark, Sweden and Norway where they originally come from. So England's a great place for them to settle and set up their own their own land. You've also got the story of the great heathen army, the Viking army, battling its way down from the north of England down to the south, taking over all the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, including a favourite story of some of my pupils where King Edmund, I think of East Anglia, was tied to a tree and shot full of arrows and he looked like a hedgehog, apparently. So that's wow. a nice little fact for you. Yeah. Kids love that fact. <laughs> yeah, they do. There is a picture, but... Um, Obviously, it's up to you whether you show that to your own pupils or not. But this is where Alfred the Great comes in, because Alfred the Great was able to fight off the Vikings. So Wessex was the only Anglo-Saxon kingdom to not fall to the Vikings. And that's because of Alfred the Great. Um, so this is where you can get into that the, the interpretations I mentioned before about was he great? Why was he great? Famous Battle of Eddington against Guthrum, the leader of the Viking uh, heathen army, which I'll come back to uh, later on with one of my fun facts. And that's when you establish Wessex, but you've also got the Dane law. So you've got an area of England which the Vikings are allowed to control. And that sets up difficulties later on when you get to, you know, William the Conqueror coming over in 1066 because the Dane law are fiercely independent from the rest of England at this time. They've got a lot of different cultures and traditions because they're part Viking, part Anglo-Saxon. You've got Alfred the Great... um, grandson Athelstan who you could consider as the first king of England because he's able to fight back and get some of that land back from the Dane law and unite England under one kingdom which is the first time that happens but Athelstan sort of again gets lost in history and after that other kings uh, descendants of Alfred the Great establish currency establish a government establish earldoms to help him help the kings rule the country you've got Danegeld being paid 
you know, famously by Athelred the Unready, to stop Vikings from attacking. You've even got Viking kings of England, like King Canute, coming over and actually ruling England as the rightful king. And then you've got sort of a tussle between Viking kings, Anglo-Saxon kings, up to the confessor, Edward, not Ed, Edward the confessor. (laughs) Um, Eddie, yeah, good name. Um, Edward the confessor, who isn't a fighter king, he's a quite peaceful king, very religious, and he actually dies without an heir in 1066, January, 5th of January, 1066. And that's what then opens up Norman conquest um, to be able to happen uh, later on. So that's kind of Anglo-Saxons in a nutshell. <laughs> well, very well done, Belle. Um, Sorry, thank I, you. I, I have <laughs> a few questions. My first question is, so you said that there's the Kingdom of Wessex, there's the Kingdom of East Anglia. How many kingdoms are there? Okay, so there are five. Can you name them? Wessex. Yeah. East Anglia. Yeah. Kent. Yeah. Northumbria. Yeah. And Mercia. Very good stuff. So Mercy is like, Ooh. that's like the northwest and down to the Midlands on like the Welsh border. Northumbria yeah. is obviously the other side of that. Kent is yep. Kent. Um, yep. You've got Wessex, which is sort of the south, getting into the southwest. Yeah. And then East Anglia, which is East Anglia. Um, no Cornwall at this point, though, is there? No, I think they are still Celtic. They are still Celtic. Right. Very, yeah. <laughs> yes. According to Last Kingdom, they are still Celtic. Okay, so those are the five Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So... Alfred the Great was a king of Wessex. And yep. so which kingdoms get taken up by the Dane law then? So at some point, Kent is absorbed into Wessex. So it becomes four. Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia are the ones that are absorbed into Dane law. Wow. So a lot of land to the Vikings. Yeah. And how does Ethelstan manage to unite all of them into England? Does he reach out to the Vikings in a... A diplomatic way? Does he do this by killing everyone? How does Athelstan navigate this? Athelstan is Alfred's grandson. Alfred's son, Edward, and his sister, Athelflaed. Edward and Athelflaed are able to sort of fight back and actually physically gain back land for the Anglo-Saxons. And Athelstan continues to gain land for the Anglo-Saxons. And that's what sort of unites England for the first time under one ruler. Also, I have another question. I have many questions, Mel. Um, okay. one, one is, why does it get called the Dane Law? I know that might sound really obvious, but because that's a really good way to break it down for kids, why does it get called Dane Law? Well, Vikings uh, come from the three Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden and Denmark. So it's called sort of Dane Law because it's governed or in the law of the Danish. So Dane law means sort of governed by Vikings from Denmark. So it's outside of English law. They can kind of yes. do what they want. They follow the Viking way of life. They follow the Viking religion. They have Viking customs up there. Yeah, they're sort of, they've got a very independent kind of culture and, right. and traditions because they've sort of merged the Danish with the Anglo-Saxon. Okay. And yes, they still pay to, you know, pay tax and obey English laws. They've got their own customs that are sort of unique to the Dane law area. So I suppose it's a good analogy, it's almost like Scotland is today and Wales and Northern Ireland, that they have their own sort of governments, they have their own cultures, they have their own language as well, but they are still technically part of Great Britain as a concept. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's quite a good analogy, yeah. Thank you. Under later Anglo-Saxon kings, there's one king, rather than five different kingdoms that we mentioned before, those kingdoms essentially become earldoms. So rather than the king of Wessex, king of Kent, king of Northumbria, you've got the Earl of Wessex, Earl of Northumbria. Um, so even though Northumbria is is more sort of Danish in its traditions, um, you you would be a, sort of ruled by an earl who would be sort of loyal to the king and help you like you know use their power as an earl to do the king's 
sort of bidding. Mm. Um, however, in Northumbria, because they were quite fiercely independent, they liked it when they were, you know, somebody from their own sort of stock was the Earl of Northumbria. They didn't like it when a Southerner was put in charge of Northumbria as Earl of Northumbria, and that actually caused a revolt and an uprising. And That's the really Earl of Northumbria called Tostig was actually kicked out of England because he was you know really disliked by the people of Northumbria so yeah again so they are they are sort of governed by the king of England and earls who are loyal to the king of England but again with their own sort of independence yeah and because they there's also something to do with tax as well so they're often maybe not taxed as heavily as other parts of England because they're paying partly towards the Danegeld as well so just to ask a question as well sorry Danegeld is yeah. essentially tax yeah essentially it's tax to stop by uh, to pay off the Vikings and stop them from invading Oh, so it's almost, it's actually more like protection money. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the mafia, but in 800 yeah, AD. Like, yeah. So, yeah, please don't hurt me. <laughs> so, for example, then in Wessex, the King of Wessex says, Oh, the Vikings are coming. This is really bad. Everyone pay a tax, and we will give this money to the Vikings so that they don't invade us. They go and invade someone else. Yeah, and the most famous example of that is Ethelred um, the Unready. Yeah, he's the most famous example of an Anglo Saxon king who paid large amounts of Danegeld to the, to the Vikings who kept attacking. <laughs> they kept paying Danegeld. <laughs> and I'm assuming the people of his kingdom were not happy about that. No, they were no. not. Although I learned very recently that Unready. He, he's called Ethelred the Unready, which may, maybe makes you think that he was useless, but he was called Unready because he became king at a very young age and his advisors were not very right. trustworthy. And that's actually why he's called Unready, which I thought was quite interesting. That is that's, interesting. That's and you, interesting. Could, you, could make, you could make some sort of link with that. I'm just thinking about how you teach this. With Ethelred the Unready, you can make some sort of link to the, to the children saying, would you, do you think you'd be able to be king? What would you do? If Absolutely. You were king? Sort of yeah. How old was Ethelred when he became king, do you know? Uh, well, bearing in mind that some of the dates were a little bit wishy-washy back in this era. We're talking about 12. Wow, oh. okay. So, Alex, is there anything that Mel said that you are super excited to teach? Um, I mean, to be honest, the, all of the, the stuff about you can make it, I'm thinking of thinking how to make this all very visual. And mm. there is lots of it to visualise. So the, the changing of hands, of how, how the land has changed is very visual. You can use lots of maps to make that really visual. And you can see that chronology of maps is really good. I like maps. So that's just yeah. <laughs> No, 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 that's true. But yeah, um, the, 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 the five Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, that's a great map because then they're like, oh, this, is, this isn't how our country is currently split up today. And you can always, I mean, I mean to the point where you can superimpose the current map over the top mm. and... I think it's actually it's quite an interesting topic and one that I've never studied before. So there you go. Maybe, maybe because I'm interested now. Um, but I, thought it, <laughs> I think it helps. All... I, that does help if a teacher's interested in it themselves. And that's yeah, also exactly. something to say, which is teaching rule number one, maybe, is even if you are not interested in it, you have to make it look like you are. Yeah, because absolutely. if you say this is a boring topic, how on earth are the kids going to yeah. be bothered about it? So, but anyway, yeah. there you go. There's teaching 101. Um, so, Mel, <laughs> you are now going to do a deep dive for us. I know that's a very okay. controversial term at the moment, but it's the best way to describe <laughs> it. You're going to do a deep okay. dive into one particular aspect of this okay. topic. So, which have you chosen, Mel? I'm going to talk about Alfred the Great. Okay, so I've mentioned before Alfred the Great, this idea of was he great, was he not so great? I'm going to sort of talk about some of the positive things about him, which some people might already know he was very savvy at fighting against the vikings there was one point where he had to retreat into some marshland um, that he knew very well from his youth and that was able he was able to sort of 
escape from the Vikings who'd attacked him at his Michaelmas feast. So he's able to escape into the marshland and use his knowledge of the area to protect himself against being killed by the Vikings, which allowed him to then gather his army back, fight back against the Vikings at the Battle of Eddington, which is where him and Guthrum, the leader of the Viking Great Heathen Army, were able to fight it out. Alfred won, established Dane law with Guthrum. And again, one of my favourite facts about Alfred is that he manages to get Guthrum and the Vikings to convert to Christianity. And as part of that agreement, Alfred became Guthrum's godfather. Again, a great fact that the kids really like. I think that's really funny. Um, that Alfred the Great was Guthrum's godfather after they'd just been fighting. Other reasons why I really like Alfred the Great, he was very keen at educating his children equally. So he had his, his first child was a daughter called Athelflaed. And you get a lot of Athels and Athelstan, Athelflaed, Athelred, um, Athelwolf. There's an Athelwolf at some point. So what does Athel stand for? So Athel, common prefix in this period, it means royal. So that's why a lot of the kings and their royal family are called Athel. So Athelflaed means royal lady. Athelred means uh, sort of royal advice. And then when you get into 1066 Normal Conquest, you actually have a contender for the throne called Edgar Athling, which means sort of royal prince. So again, that, that name crops up a lot. Alfred, he's not called Ethel, he was a fifth son. Um, but uh, Alfred, great, he educated his children, including Athelred. Now, she is my favourite historical figure of the moment. She was educated, the same as her brothers, so well-read. She was uh, educated in fighting. Obviously, grew up watching her father fight off the Vikings. And she went off to marry the Lord of Mercia, another Ethelred, because everyone's called Ethelred. That book of Anglo-Saxon baby names is very limited at this time. <laughs> they're all but, A's as well, it seems. They're all A's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there anyone Beowulf? who doesn't have the name beginning with an A? Beowulf. Is Beowulf really one? <laughs> there's, an, there's an Edmund and an Edward. Oh, um, they ruined it. Yeah, yeah, I know. A and A, they're like the vowels. But Ethelred goes and marries the Lord of Mercia. And, and when he dies, and actually before he dies when he's very ill, she takes on a lot of responsibility uh, of leading Mercia and leading the army. And I showed a picture of her to my year sevens who were, we were talking about this image. And I just said, right, what can you tell me about Ethelred? And I was very careful not to use any gender pronouns. So I just talked about Ethelred. What did they look like? How do you describe them? And they were all using words like, oh, he looks really strong. He looks like a really good fighter. Um, he looks really powerful. He looks really kingly. And then they were all really surprised when I said, actually, Athelflaed is a, is a she. And they were like, what? And they opened their eyes that there was this oh, an Anglo-Saxon woman. Because a lot of the things we talked about were sort of Alfred the Great, a lot of the, the kings, Viking sort of men fighting. So this Athelflaed is really like an you know, interesting figure for them. So I thought the fact that, that, that's the question I have as well is like how how often is it to see women in this period? Is Athelflaed really the only one that you could do a bit of a look at for someone who's not a man? She's interesting because she is a, a royal figure. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is existing at this time. Again, that's an Alfred the Great invention. There's also a chronicle about Mercia in particular, which Athelflaed again commissions to be made. So we get a lot of information about Athelflaed because of you know, she had the means to create those sources herself. I'm very passionate about making history a bit more inclusive, especially in terms of getting more women involved. Um, and I do think there is a scope to maybe look at the life of a normal Anglo-Saxon woman, the fact that you know they would have married Vikings to sort of protect themselves and also to you know show this merging, this convergence of Anglo-Saxon and Danish culture. So I do think there is more women to be looked at in terms of Anglo-Saxon history. But I think Athelflaed's a key one because she's she's noble, so we have we have more information about her. Also, the Vikings used to have uh, women in their armies. They were called shield maidens. So Excellent. you could even have a look at that and the fact that yeah, and when the Vikings came over the anglo-saxons were like 
what how are there women in your army and they were like this is very normal for us other things about Armin the great i think interesting is he he was very creative and very innovative he created um what we call burrs b-u-r-h-s um which were fortified towns that protected the anglo-saxons from the vikings so they'd look very similar to a castle except that they're flat and they're quite big uh, but they have this wall around them they have a moat dug around this ditch dug around um so the whole town lives inside this this burr to protect against viking attacks so everyone that's including us including kids everyone loves gruesome facts don't they so you think about going to yep. the tower of london you think about going to castles museums the gory and the bizarre really really get our interest what are age appropriate fun facts that we could talk about in this period we've already said about edmund becoming a hedgehog with all of the arrows <laughs> being stuck in him there's i suppose in terms of looking at anglo-saxon sort of life um their sort of laws they had something called blood feuds so if um a member of your family had been killed if you knew who had committed that crime committed that murder it would be totally within your rights to go and kill a member of their family yeah, that seems but fair. But then in, in retaliation, <laughs> they can then kill someone back of your family. And it goes on and on. And I usually describe this as murder tennis, because you're constantly yeah. batting <laughs> murder to murder from each family. The lawmakers, the, the law keepers, sorry, got fed up of that and came up with an idea called Wergild, where basically, depending on your status in society, if you're an earl or if you were a thane, which was kind of like a, like a local lord, or whether you're a peasant, you would be worth a certain amount of money. So if someone in your family had been killed and they were an earl, you could, they basically pay you compensation for murdering that person in your family. So it'd be quite a lot more for an earl than it would be for a peasant. Um, so they sort of, that was an end to the, the blood feuds. So basically rather than killing someone, you gave them the money. I think my, my favourite part of this whole topic is the Lindisfarne raid, uh, raid. I think that is so yep. interesting. And like you said, there is such a good description of it where they talk about the dragons and you've got that fantastic cross-curricular linking about metaphors and talking yep. about like the, the adjectives that they use and the fact that you can tell from this chronicle how terrified everyone must have been. And that could link to you know your interpretation about the Vikings, this idea of, oh, they did this horrible slaughter. And I use the word slaughter because that's a Viking word. Words we get from the Vikings like rampage, ransack, slaughter, berserk, very aggressive kinds of words. But then on the other hand, you get words like husband and window and egg. Egg? Because, yes, egg. <laughs> Our word egg comes from the Vikings. You, you have this yeah, I'm always different... talking about that. It's great. Like, talking about yeah. how, where words come from. And this just adds another element. Yeah. Because I, I'll still be teaching most of these children languages. So I can yeah. put it cross-curricular. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit you, I'm sorry, you just literally blow my mind with egg. I can't get beyond egg. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, if you want my interesting fact about Viking etym etymology, it is that any place name beginning with a sk sound, so S-C or S-K, that is a Viking one. So Scarborough, mm. Skegness, Skelmersdale, Scunthorpe. A lot of them, again, yeah. in the northeast, where the Danelaw would have been. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Whitby, Grimsby, yeah, all the same. There you go. So is it the B there that makes it the Viking bit? Yeah, so B cool. and Thorpe tend to be suffixes that are uh, Viking. Well, there you go. We're learning so much. Um, so on to our seconds section. Yeah, that's great. But how do I teach it? We've all been there. 
we've all sat through an instructional session and heard all the facts and theories about a topic but at the end of the day how do I teach it so at the start we said that the key concepts within this topic are things like religion we've got identity we've got culture we've got kingship and we've got sort of like this idea of a nation as well yeah. those are those are quite tricky concepts for key stage oh, two yeah. peoples what are good ways that you've taught them in the past I think you know when we talk about making an abstract thing quite concrete I think trying to draw comparisons to something people will will know talking about your head teacher being like an earl so being worth more than a class teacher who'd be maybe be a peasant um i think those kind of things really help to sort of giving i feel like history is one of those subjects where rather than sort of narrowing it down you end up giving more and more information to make a concept understandable a difficult concept like identity how do you break that one down oh that is a, that is it is a big it is a big concept i think maybe you know a good way in again would be to say what makes somebody british today and you probably get a lot of stereotypical things like drinking tea uh, speaking like the queen or uh, fish and chips that kind of thing mm. therefore use those ideas and apply that to identity of anglo-saxon this idea of well what makes somebody anglo-saxon is it because they're christian is it because um, they against the vikings is it because they live in a certain part of, of england or a certain kingdom of england and then also you've got this idea of identity of england as a country this idea of it being you know a nation under athelstan and then you've got the strengthening centralization of government under subsequent uh, subsequent kings and it's interesting as well because like ethel fled is the daughter of the king of wessex but she marries uh, ethel red from yeah. mercy that that wedding ethel fled and ethel red <laughs> um, but she marries someone from mercia i mean how how much do we know if there was any differences in identity between the different kingdoms what's interesting about ethelfled becoming lady of mercians is because there was a precedent for women being in leadership roles in Mercia, whereas in Wessex there wasn't. So actually, but her leaving Wessex and going to Mercia, that would be almost yeah. like in nowadays you left Crossing England border, yeah. and went to Germany or went to France to be a queen instead. So that yeah. even though it's part of the same country for us, it really wasn't back then. And it is actually a testament to Ethelstan that he could actually get everyone together because if they are so different, how yeah. on earth did he manage that? So yeah, well done Ethelstan. And that links in really well with significance and it links in really well with um, legacy and stuff like that. So that's really interesting. Are there any particularly challenging bits that you found when you've taught this to kids? Um, I do think the names getting confused between like oh, Ethel Red, Ethel Sled, Ethel Star, Ethel, Wolf, Alfred, like they do get a bit confused with the names and the spellings of the names as well. So I think just I think with that, regularly going over, regularly testing, like low stakes testing, just like recap quizzes and all that kind of thing would really help. Whether you could set sort of like spellings as homework or something like that, that might help. That's a nice idea. Um Alex, do, as you teach Key Stage 2, do you have any I any good activities that you are already thinking you might use when teaching this topic? So again, I mean now I'm I'm just thinking on the children I teach, a lot of them have special educational needs of some description, mostly dyslexia. And so making it visual is entirely what I would need to do, whether that be cartoon images or images that people have managed to collate through history of the people is helpful. The wordiness of history is, is something that I'm 
concerned about and try yeah. and make it as accessible to those children who struggle with words. I think that's a really good idea. I think yeah, having like yeah, a little cartoon strip or having like little fact files just so that they could keep referring them back to going Alfred, who is Alfred? Let's go back, let's have a look at him. We recognise him, he's yeah. done X, Y, Z. Yeah, I suppose it's just that constant constant reinforcement, yeah. isn't it? Going over it. Almost almost having a fact file almost that they fill out might be better as well. So yeah. they was we learn yeah. about them, they fill in the facts about them. And... That would also show their progress as well as they're going along. Just thinking <laughs> of that. Not saying yeah, that, that, that but not saying that's all that education is, but I suppose it would show that they are learning stuff along the way if you're constantly yeah, filling in this little fact file or something. That's very true, yes. Yeah, something to show yeah. evidence. And yeah, comic strips would help with the sort of chronology storytelling element of a lot of the things we've talked about mm-hmm. as well. You know, storyboarding it would be like almost like a timeline, but with the visual element in there as well. Yeah, rather than just making it a boring old timeline. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, time- timeline. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, and especially stuff like Linda's Farm, the Battle of Ed- Eddington, Apple Stand, bringing together all the kingdoms. I think, yeah, those would be really nice storyboards as well, wouldn't they? So thinking of that, though, obviously that then really links in well to art, to English. Are there any really good cross-curricular links, Mel? Because in many primary schools, history is taught as a topic so it's taught with geography with re and other topics as well are there any really good cross-curricular links well we've we sort of talked about maps and um, alex mentioned maps and um, so again you've got sort of geography element in there conversion to christianity would obviously link into religion you could talk about with english there's links to things like beowulf and the legend of arthur as well sort of That's very famous myth to do with english kings it's interesting and alex obviously you are a language specialist by training can you spot any cross-curricular links Do you fancy teaching norwegian <laughs> Um, not particularly. Uh, of course, it would be it would be old Norse, surely. Oh, of course. Uh, Sorry, apologies. <laughs> but either way, you've got those links to to German, especially. Um, yeah, that's true. There's also links to English because you can think about where English words come. As the etymology of all our words is built into where these words came from with the Anglo-Saxons and from the Anglo-Danish from the Vikings. So it's all very interesting. I mean, I'm still flabbergasted by egg. So egg. I'm, still, I'm still over here. <laughs> this is my last question for this section and it's something we've all seen we've all done because it's potentially a friday afternoon and you've just got to get through to the end of the day and it's the differentiation between filler activities and genuinely good activities well we talked about using the lindisfarne attack as a primary source as, a, as an excerpt from the anglo-saxon chronicle now obviously depending on what age group and the, the the level of your age group um, that you're teaching whether you might need to tweak some of those words or whether you could leave it as it is um, but that would be good because then you're actually getting them and if you really ham up this idea of it it's a real source like an actual anglo-saxon monk has written it can you find the anglo-saxon chronicle online yes there are on the british library website there are excerpts you can see an actual image of the chronicle and there's transcripts of it in both original text and present day text so if oh, you want to try some uh, yield that would English. be so interesting <laughs> especially for alex as a as a languages teacher actually maybe absolutely although old english is so hard i remember doing something at university it, it doesn't it's not as easy as it sounds oh is it not oh no <laughs> <laughs> They actually get excited about using historical evidence, I think, and actually using something from the time. We had a really good discussion when, in, in my classes when I've done this. When we've done Alfred the Great, is you give them lots of different facts. You sort of give them a scale and you say, right, well, this is the great end. This is the not so great end. This is the middle. And you actually you actually have a class discussion about, you know, where would we put this? And you can actually ha- end up having quite a lot of oral discussion rather mm. than it all be written. That might help with the differentiation for pupils with dyslexia or, or word processing. I think we mentioned before, avoid just drawing an angle 
Anglo-Saxon helmet for colouring in an Anglo-Saxon oh, ship yes. because that's not going to help anybody. But you could maybe get into some interesting sort of maybe research with things like find a Norse god and create a fact file about a Norse god because mm. that could open up bits of cultural capital, things like Thor, you know, oh, that's yeah. where we get Thursday, things like that. Also, if they're fans of Marvel films, then again, that sort of <laughs> cultural capital in terms of that as well. So there are yeah. different directions you could go. And that's the thing with this curriculum because it's so broad you can focus in on the bits that you're really interested in i mean i now yeah. would be so interested to teach alpha the great which i probably wouldn't have been but just because you have Ooh. made it sound so exciting but also <laughs> very welcome but also <laughs> things like viking life anglo-saxon life those would be really yeah. interesting parts to do a proper deep dive into right so we are now on to the final section they think it's all over <laughs> Right, so now we are at uh, the final section where we are going to ask Alex 10 questions that have been covered in this episode, and we're going to see how many you can get right. So, Alex, are you ready? Ready. Fantastic. Question one, what was the Danegeld? It was money that the Anglo-Saxons paid towards the Vikings to stop them attacking. Protection money, essentially. Fantastic. Um, question two, in what year did Edward the Confessor die? Yes, 1066. Well done. <laughs> What was the name of Alfred the Great's daughter? Ethelrong. <laughs> Ethel Fled. Ethel Fled. There you go. The only Ethel name that I didn't mention. <laughs> Ethel Wrong, though, is a fantastic one. Question four. When did the Anglo-Saxon kingdom begin? What event it, did it come after? It uh, came after the withdrawal of the Roman fantastic which three different tribes made up the anglo-saxons no don't know can't remember do you want to guess two for the anglo-saxons the angles and the saxons fantastic and well, the jutes and the jutes hey! well done <laughs> right question six um where did the vikings attack in 793 a.d they attacked lindisfarne yes they did um question seven which kingdom was alfred the great king of Alfred the Great was King of Wessex. He was indeed. Question eight, what was the Dane law? Dane law was the rule of law coming from the Scandinavia that ruled England or parts of it anyway. Fantastic. Uh, question nine, who was the first king of England proper? It was William, but potentially you could argue that it was also Edward the Confessor. No. Can you? No, I'm going to... William? Mel? Uh, Athelstan. Athelstan. There you go. There you go. So that's all right. It was all right so far. And then finally, question 10. What was the Ware Guild? Yeah, I can't remember. Mel? Um, it was the compensation payment to stop uh, blood feud uh, ongo being ongoing between families. That was quite a hard one, though, Alex, so don't worry. It yeah. was the prevention of murder tennis, I remember yes. now. There you go. Well, you know what? I'll give you a half mark for that. So, Alex, very well done. You got eight and a half out of ten. You are our Yay. current high scorer in the ten-question quiz. <laughs> this is the first episode, but still very well done. A very and high, high bar. So, Alex, we've taught you all you need to know about the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. It would be a poor CPD session if at the end we didn't ask you about some future applications. So with all that Mel has told you today, which one fact are you going to make sure you include? The Hedgehog King. Obviously, always <laughs> the Hedgehog King. I'm so glad I mentioned that now. <laughs> That's what it should always be called. So Although I am also going to spend some time talking about Ethel Fred as well. I quite like that. Ethel wrong. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just I, I quite like that now. Um, that was so, simple, right? Though <laughs> there we go. See, history teachers the coolest ones. So yeah. So thank you very much to my guests, Melia Clifton and Alex Bedwell. Uh, thank you very much to you for listening. There is a quiz available to test your own knowledge on this topic that can be found on the One Step Twitter account. And we'll see you next time with a different host, different guests, and different topics on Every Day's a School Day.